So we're beginning a new series this morning called Reformation and Rebuilding, and we're going to be walking through the book of Nehemiah between now and basically shortly before Christmas. Um, at least that, that's the plan at this point. So um, our typical pattern here at Bethel is to kind of go back and forth between Old and New Testaments, a book in the Old Testament, a book in the New Testament, and even um, had a pattern of a longer book and then a shorter book and then a longer book and shorter book. Um, so we want to have a balanced diet. We want to know the whole counsel of God and understand God's mind and think his thoughts after him and be shaped by the word. So I've had Nehemiah on the radar here for a little while. And after sabbatical, we hit Revelation 4 and 5 and then Romans 8. And near the end of Romans 8, I have to be honest, I was thinking, how are we going to go from Romans 8 to Nehemiah and it not be kind of anticlimactic? I mean, Romans 8 is just like dynamite, you know? So, frankly, I was not particularly excited, and I was wondering if maybe we should do something else. But I started in studying Nehemiah, and I started to get excited. And I think I can see, I hope that you will also see how this book is, I think, a very fitting follow-up to what we've studied for the last two months. So if you haven't already, we, we always put a little blurb in the Friday email, preparing for Sunday. Gail sends that out, preparing for Sunday, and it's usually read the text that we're going to be studying. Um, but there's also some resources on Nehemiah. You know, you kind of get out of it what you put into it. So I'd encourage you to dive in to both Ezra and Nehemiah. Originally, they were one book. Okay, and they're like right on the heels of each other. So the more you understand Ezra, it's backdrop and background for understanding Nehemiah. So I'd encourage you, just a couple things here quickly is take the time to read Nehemiah, uh, read Ezra, what am I saying? Ezra, there we go. Um, this week, if you haven't, recently, and also to read all the way through Nehemiah so you have a feel of where things are headed. Um, I'd also encourage you to use the ESV Study Bible. The intro material is really helpful on those two books and the notes as well. There's other stuff that I mentioned in the Friday email. You can check that out later. All right? So what we need to do is get acclimated here. There's an outline um, online, or it was out on the desk, and if you want a paper copy, you can run out there now. If you forgot to grab one on the way in, the points will also be up on the screen. But let's begin by getting acclimated to where this is in redemptive history. Okay, where are we is point number one. And please, don't check out here. This is actually helpful. Um, if you don't know the history, you're not going to understand what's going on here. So I, I try, try to be purposeful with these details, not just, you know, nickel knowledge for curiosity's sake, but this is purposeful for understanding what's going on. All right? So little history lesson, in a sense, to locate where we are. You know that... There was King David and then King Solomon. And because of his sin and idolatry, marrying all these other wives and, and their gods kind of took his heart away, the kingdom was divided, right, between the northern and the southern kingdom. So oftentimes in the Bible when it refers to Israel, it's talking about the northern kingdom. And Judah is the southern kingdom. So 
Again, this is thumbnail sketch stuff. You could fill in a lot more here. But the northern kingdom was particularly wicked. They really didn't have any good kings. They ended up getting sacked in 722 BC by the Assyrians. So judgment came on them before it came on Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, because they were more wicked. Okay? But the southern kingdom was a mixed bag too. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king, you know, back and forth. And bad king, bad king. And they ended up getting sacked in 586, 587 B.C. by the Babylonians. Babylonians came. Nebuchadnezzar came in and leveled Jerusalem, burned it with fire. They had become so rebellious and hard-hearted despite God's patience and long-suffering and warnings and prophets. They finally just stuck their fingers in their ears so much that he had to judge them. So, from the southern kingdom, most everyone was either killed or carted off to Babylon in exile. So, Jemmy just read, don't you love it when Jemmy reads? If Jemmy does a Bible app, I will download that and listen to her read the Bible. Okay. Um, so, most everyone killed, carted off to Babylon, Daniel. You know, she read Daniel's prayer. He was carted off. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were carted off. So you can see how the book of Daniel fits in there. So only some peasants were left behind to ensure that no rebuilding or uprising against the Babylonian kingdom would take place in Jerusalem. Pretty effective plan, right? To keep your thumb over the area that you have conquered. Well, every kingdom eventually falls and the great kingdom of, of Babylon fell. In 539, Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Persian, defeated the Babylonians, and the Persian Empire became the most powerful in the ancient Near East. And so Israel and Judah, okay, I mean, Israel was really no more, and, you know, okay. Israel and Judah, that area was called the Beyond the River. Okay, that's just the name that they were given. That area became part of the kingdom of Persia. 538, something interesting happened. Cyrus issued a decree that any Jew who wished to return to Jerusalem could do so. So they could go home. Now, why would he do this? Why was return and reestablishment allowed and even funded? Like, he made this happen. Well, when you conquer a nation... You guard against future rebellion by, you know, doing what he did. Just taking all the key leaders away. All the leadership potential is out of town. You've left, you're left with peasants and the weak. But there's a downside to that plan, to that program. It impacts your tax base. You tracking? So all that wealth was plundered in a moment, short term, but now there's no ongoing revenue. No revenue stream, no tax stream from a weakened nation once you sack them like that. So it's kind of like picking the apples, like picking an apple tree clean or a, a, an orchard of apple trees clean. You've got a bunch of bushels of apples, but if you cut those trees down, you're not going to have apples next year. So... You can see from a human perspective 
at least if you can control it, you let these people go back home and rebuild, especially if you finance it, they have some allegiance, they owe you, and you can tax them and have ongoing revenue stream. So from a human perspective, you can see some reasons why a king would do this, but there's more going on than just that kind of human motivation. God was doing something. So our fighter verses, if you don't know what the fighter verses are, you can look up the app, fighter verses app. It's a good way to do Bible memory. Just meditate on scripture, little portions each week. It's what we do on Wednesday night at prayer meeting. We do a devotional on the fighter verses, and then we pray. Half hour on the first thing, half hour on the second thing. Um, join us this Wednesday night. More on that later. Uh, but the fighter verses this past week were Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then this strange thing in verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east. It's a metaphor. Um, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So who's this bird of prey? Who's this man of my counsel? Well, just a little bit earlier, God's already revealed that way before it ever happened in Isaiah 45.1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped, to subdue nations before him. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. And why is he doing all this? For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you Cyrus way before you were even born. I'm going ahead and prophesying this through prophet Isaiah. Though you do not know me. Cyrus didn't know the Lord, but he was used by God. God can use the most powerful people in the world like pawns. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you. Cyrus was pretty powerful. But all this power came from the Lord. All that he did was ultimately accomplished because the Lord enabled him to. I equip you, though you do not know me, and all of it, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So I'm going to raise you up, and I'm going to use you to bring my people home. Okay? So, that was then, <laughs> but the same thing is true today. Our sovereign God is providentially working his will, including through human authorities and all kinds of worldly movements and events and motives. Like We can trust, brothers and sisters, that the world is not spinning out of control, but being guided by God's sovereign hand to his appointed ends. So the exiles were allowed to return. 
there were actually several waves of returnees. So Ezra chapters 1 to 6, Ezra is kind of in two movements, 1 to 6 and then 7 through the end of the book, okay? So Zerubbabel leads the first wave, okay? So it was Zerubbabel and Joshua, the priest, and the altar was rebuilt and the temple rebuilding began. So that first wave of exiles, remember I said that Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539. He issues the decree in 538. So the first wave, 538 to around 535, and the altar, the temple. The temple was finished in 516 under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Okay? Ezra then arrives in Jerusalem in 458. So there's a gap, Zerubbabel, Ezra. So Ezra 1 to 6, you track in 538 to 515. Ezra 7, through the end of Nehemiah, all happens in the course of about 20 years. So Ezra and Nehemiah, fairly close contemporaries. Okay? So at the time of Nehemiah, the Persian Empire was at its zenith. Their power extended over almost all of the Near East. So let's look now at Nehemiah and start reading chapter 1, verse 1. So if you're not there already, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to look at chapter 1 this morning. But we'll begin in the first few verses here. But that all brings us up to speed. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 398. So the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Okay, remember Susa from Esther? Okay. It's the winter residence of the king of Persia. So, now it happened that in that time, as Nehemiah was in Susa, the, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, literal or maybe in the sense of a kinsman, came with certain men from Judah. Okay, this is like eight or nine hundred miles. So it's like here to Birmingham, Alabama, something like that. Jacksonville, Florida. But by donkey. Okay? So it would take a while. So... Okay, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, remember the history lesson. It's been almost 150 years since Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army laid siege to Jerusalem, right? So it's unlikely that Nehemiah is surprised on that account. He knew that history. So Nehemiah knew that quite a number of exiles had returned, right, with Zerubbabel and with Ezra. So you can imagine that he had hopes that the people of God, the city of God, were being rebuilt and getting along fairly well by now. 
Instead, the remnant is in great trouble and shame, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So what's more likely is that this refers to what happened in Ezra chapter 4. So we need to take a look at that briefly here. You can turn there, or you can follow along on the screen. So the adversaries of the people of God. So Zerubbabel came, and then Ezra came, and they were trying to do a good work But some of the neighbors didn't like it. They didn't want this city to be rebuilt. And they put pressure on them. So the adversaries of the people of God discouraged the rebuilding of Jerusalem during the reign of Cyrus, also during the reign of Darius, also during the reign of Ahasuerus, Esther, okay? And then the king on the throne right now, Artaxerxes. So in the days of Artaxerxes, again, Ezra is in Judah, Artaxerxes is on the throne, and Nehemiah is with Artaxerxes in Susa. So look at chapter 4, verse 11. Here's what these troublemakers, these enemies of the people of God, wrote in a letter to Artaxerxes to stop the work. 4.11. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, that's Israel and Judah, send greeting, greetings, greeting, sorry, singular. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute customer toll and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, in other words, you keep us alive, you know, we're benefiting from you, and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. You'll lose your control over this area. The king sent an answer, 417, to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you've sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it's been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? And then 423. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they're like, all right, now we can go put this into action. They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. So, the city of God, and with it the people of God, it's broken down and in ruins. So, if you don't have 
a wall in those days. If you don't have gates, there is no stability, no security, no future. You can't repopulate a city if there's no defense system. You see that? So there's no future, there's no hope for the people of God in that area. It's going to remain small and weak. So you can see why Nehemiah responded the way that he did. Let's look at how he responds in verse 4. Point number 2. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah does not hold the problems of the people of God out at arm's length. He's not removed, even though he's a thousand, almost a thousand miles removed, eight, nine hundred miles removed. He's not removed in his own heart. He's not cool or detached. So he's actually doing fine. He's the cupbearer to the king. We'll find out at the end of the chapter. At the end, verse 11, you, you see it there. He's got a successful career in Susa. He is the right-hand man to the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he's obviously trusted, so the king puts his life in Nehemiah's hands every day. If you're the cupbearer, you're tasting the wine so that the king doesn't get poisoned. So obviously, the most powerful man trusts Nehemiah. So he's pretty successful in his career. He's made it. He's also connected. I mean, just think, you don't get to be the cupbearer without broad trust, respect, and connectedness. So if anybody's going to hear or get wind of a plot to assassinate the king, it needs to be Nehemiah. That's the kind of person you want as your cupbearer, right? So things are fine for him, but he does not maintain professional distance He cares, we'll see this more next week, he cares more about the people of God, the kingdom of God, than his own personal success, safety, and comfort. He actually cares more about the people of God than his own life. So listen, this is, and this is actually what started to get me excited about Nehemiah, this is incredibly relevant. What shape is the evangelical church in right now? Let's just limit ourselves to America, United States of America. How's the church doing? Well, if you haven't been living under a rock, then you know that there are plenty of reasons to think the church in America is in ruins. Not everywhere, but There's a lot of brokenness and ruins. There's been more than enough moral failure, financial impropriety, abuse, cover-ups. Has anybody noticed that there's been a wave of narcissistic leaders who've been finally outed and then booted? Anyone following the podcast Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? You don't have to do it. I'm just saying, okay, maybe I should, bad illustration. One person, okay. There was a church, okay, there's a couple more. There was a church that was one of the fastest growing churches in America for many years, out in Seattle. And 
In God's kindness, he used that church in significant ways. But that leader was finally basically fired, forced out because of narcissistic leadership, abusive leadership. And the whole church, this massive, you know, network of, of churches that they were planting, it just collapsed almost overnight. I could go, go on and give other illustrations, but maybe there's only a few of that, that have heard, and that's fine. Um, but it's happened. There's been massive institutional self-protection taking priority over care for victims and justice for perpetrators. Does anybody know what's going on in the SBC? <laughs> maybe, okay, so here, like sometimes it's, I guess ignorance can be bliss, so we can focus on this too much, so I'm not trying to say, why don't you just go spend the next week soaking in all the mess that's going on? Here, let me send you to all these news sources. No, but we also don't want to have our heads in the sand and be blind to what is going on. There have been a lot of high-profile deconversion stories over the last couple of years, and that's had kind of like a ripple effect, impacted a lot of people who were impacted by these people. There's been obviously widespread division and disunity over politics and masking and vaccines and race and justice and on and on, right? And how about this? How about the catechism power of the internet, of social media? And thus the influence of the world and the spirit of the age. How that's proving to be a way more effective way to, to shape people sadly, than the catechism of the word in the home and in the church. Do you think there's a fair amount of weariness and busyness and coldness and indifference and ineffective witness in the church? How many people, how many kids grow up in the church and then leave? In plenty of denominations, there are more churches closing than being planted. If you see the pollsters, more people identify as nuns, like no religion, no affiliation, than ever before. So, just think with me here, reflect with me here for a minute. What happens to you when you hear another bad news story like some of these? What's your most likely, your, your typical reaction? So obviously easy to get discouraged, disheartened, overwhelmed. Also easy to be indifferent or cold. We can get cynical. We can get hardened. We can just kind of bemoan all the failures and start to withdraw. We can criticize and critique pile on. We can also start to give our lives to everything else and dial back to a token investment in the kingdom. We can guard our hearts and hedge our bets and stay on the periphery so it's easy to bail if things get hard. There's not going to be as much invested. Easy to play the armchair critic. The problem with the church is, when is the church going to? 
as if you're on the outside or I'm on the outside. It's easy to lambast from the press box or lob criticism grenades from the sidelines. Easy to give way to negativity, throw up our hands, lose heart. Just We need the righteous response of Nehemiah to provoke us, to prompt us, to humble us. Listen, we need for the ruins to ruin us. I'm not saying that we can, you know, we should focus on that all the time. I'm not saying that we should focus on all the mess everywhere. We're little, like, localized, small human beings. And frankly, the 24 news, 24-7 news cycle burdens us with things that are beyond our ability to bear. We're not omniscient. And oftentimes it brings to us more bad news than we can handle as human beings. So I'm just, with that qualification, the point is, the mess in the church should mess with us. The brokenness should break us. It should break our hearts. So Nehemiah's identity and heart was too bound up with the people of God to take just cheap shots, which are obviously easy to take sometimes. He weeps and mourns and fasts and prays. So may his example stir us up to brokenheartedness over all the brokenness that's all around us. And may his fasting and prayer move us to fast and pray. So as it turns out, actually, as an elder council, we have been talking some and planning to spend some time in fasting and prayer. And just because it's here, I feel like it's appropriate to mention now this is a little bit of getting ahead of ourselves because what we are planning on doing is starting with the leaders, starting with us as elders and bringing some other leaders in to spend the first few weeks of November on a weekly basis, focused time in fasting and prayer. Because we need to grow. Like We need to first just look in and have God deal with our hearts and where there's coldness or indifference or whatever, whatever we need to repent of to do that so that he can strengthen and equip us and motivate us to be the people he wants us to be and to reach our city, our neighbors. Because we need to grow in being disciples who make disciples. And then the first three weeks of December, inviting the body to join us. So there you go. Now you know ahead of time. So you can start now if you want. But we will come back to you after November. And may the Lord move among us, humbling us, showing us where we need to repent and consecrate ourselves and seek his face and seek his strength and grace. And then we'll have the body join us in some weeks of fasting and prayer for the same purposes. All right? So, Nehemiah responds with this broken heart in mourning and fasting and prayer. So let's look now at his prayer in the rest of this section, verses 5 to 11. So the ruins led him to fasting and prayer, and his prayer is so instructive. We see that Nehemiah knows God, if you look at verse 5. We see that Nehemiah confesses his sin and the sins of his people, verses 6 and 7. 
We see that Nehemiah knows the covenant. He knows the word. He knows what God has done and promised and said. And you see that clearly in verses 7 to 10. And all of that leads him to gutsy obedience and a personal appeal for grace in that step of gutsy obedience that he's going to take. All right, so let's take those one at a time. First, it's clear that Nehemiah knows God. This is just a, such an instructive prayer. And it's very similar to the way Daniel prayed. You can maybe compare that again later this afternoon. But the way that Daniel prayed, Jemmy read Daniel 9, is very similar to the way that Nehemiah prays here. So, knowing God. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So listen, this is where we start in prayer. You see the ruins? What you really need to do is see God. We need to see God. This is the one to whom we appeal. When the church is in ruins... We need to get our eyes on the only one who can reform and restore and rebuild. We've got to remind ourselves of his character and his faithfulness. Good grief, if you, all you did was focus on the ruins, you'd want to jump off a bridge. So, we look to God. We pray to God. We need to know God. We are now those who live in the new covenant. So this is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And Nehemiah is thinking primarily of the Mosaic covenant and Davidic covenant, maybe. But we are on this side of the cross where it's not just the law on stone tablets outside of ourselves, but the law of God has been written on our hearts. If you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, you have the Spirit dwelling within you. We considered that at length in Romans 8. The law of God is written on our hearts. He's taken out hearts of stone and replaced them with soft hearts that beat after God. We want to love God and love our neighbor. So this is a God who works to save and change. And so, yes, there can be ruins, there can be mess and brokenness, but there's hope if we look to God, the God of the covenant. So listen to these promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and 32. Because this is what's at work. This is, this is the grace that is ours right now for such a time as this. Behold, the days are coming, and from our vantage point in history, they already have come. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then Jeremiah 32, 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. 
for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So you can look at the ruins and we've got to be honest, right? And not put our heads in the sand. And, and I'm not saying everything is a mess here at Bethel. What I'm saying is we can't just be okay with things as they are, the status quo. And so we can get discouraged with the ruins. Things aren't as they should be. But we have a God who is at work. We have a merciful shepherd who is leading us. He laid down his life to win us. He will lead us to green pastures and quiet waters, and he will restore our souls. There is hope because God is our God and he gives grace to the humble. So let's humble ourselves like Nehemiah and confess our sins and look at all this grace we can appeal to. If this is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, (laughs) then look what he's going to do. Look what he's going to do for us. He will not turn away from doing good to us. He made an everlasting covenant. We will not turn away from him, ultimately. We may wander, but he will bring us back if we are his. He's going to rejoice in doing us good, and he will do it with all of his heart and soul. So there is hope. So Nehemiah knows God, and he's appealing to the covenant God of steadfast love, But he also looks in and confesses both his own sin and the sins of his people. So look at verse 6. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah doesn't look down on the ruins from some self-righteous perch. He identifies himself with his people, the sinful people of God. And he doesn't identify himself in just some general way. You know, well, I'm an Israelite, so yeah, we, but I really don't mean me. He is a sinner. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly. So we're so individualistic that we oftentimes don't think in terms of corporate sin or corporate confession. We want to quickly, as Americans, absolve ourselves of identification with those who sin. Like, wasn't me. Don't look at me. I didn't do it. You know? We're individualists here. And yet the Psalms and the prophets are filled with this identification with the corporate whole. So remember Isaiah and Isaiah 6? I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So what are the sins of the people of God today? And how have we either directly or indirectly contributed to the problem? 
So again, back to some of the mess that we considered earlier. Like if you see a leader that falls due to say adultery, do you tut tut? Like we certainly can't like minimize the significance of that. Or do we mourn the impact? And then you may not have committed physical adultery, but which of us is not guilty of lust and covetousness? And so we, oh God, your people, like we are sinful. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on me. When you see a leader fall due to financial impropriety, do you scoff and say, here we go again? Or do you mourn the impact? Think of the lives that are impacted when a spiritual leader falls, someone that they trusted. And then do you look in and say, I might not be guilty of scandalous financial impropriety, but I've cut corners here or compromised there. Lord, have mercy on us. The sins that have wrought destruction in the church out there are in here in seed form. And that should lead us to grieve and pray like Nehemiah. Listen, in large swaths of our society today, evangelical sadly means something very different than what it means in the Bible. The evangel is the good news. So evangelical is people who believe the good news. But in polls, it's really clear that evangelical in large swaths of American culture, especially certain red states, actually has more to do with politics than it does with Jesus. I'm not saying that's the case here necessarily with you. I'm saying that's just true. And that's dangerous. It's called political co-opting. That should actually lead us to mourn and pray that if large swaths of people in the United States think that an evangelical is a certain kind of like Trumpian right-winger, okay? Like, I'm not making a statement on your politics right now. What I am saying is that if evangelical means this political thing, that's not what evangelical should be at the core right? So that actually should lead us to mourn and pray and to ask ourselves, have I allowed politics to take too central a place in my life? Have I in any way co-opted Jesus to my political party? And guess what? That happens on both sides. Just so you know what I'm saying and not saying here. Either side of the aisle can co-opt Jesus So, perhaps none of us have committed literal physical murder. I hope not. But who among us have not hated our blood-brought brothers and sisters and looked on some of them with contempt? Maybe especially over the last year and a half with all the division with the pandemic issues. And certainly we've all done the same toward lost people made in God's image. So, This is where, again, we look around and we see the ruins. We should mourn. And we should look in and say, Lord, 
I am a sinner. Have mercy. And then, what does Nehemiah do? He doesn't just, like, endlessly navel gaze. He then appeals to the covenant. Look at verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So listen, you can read about these promises that God made, covenantal promises to bless or to judge in Deuteronomy 9, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 30, Leviticus 26. The point is, Nehemiah knew the word. He knew the promises of God. And God made good on his promise to judge the people of Israel by the hand of Babylon. But if God kept his promise to judge, he'll also keep his promise to restore if the people repent. Do you see? So he's asking God to do that promised work. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, you will gather them back. So remember your word. He's appealing to God's own character, God's own promises. God has acted this way in the past. He's promised certain things. He's kept his word to judge. He'll also keep his word to forgive and bless and restore. So the past promises and work, the future promises to keep inform him, guide him in the present and he appeals. So for us on this side of the cross, listen, how about this for a promise that we can take to the Lord in prayer and say make good on this. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We can take that prayer to the throne of grace and say Lord make it happen. Make it happen here. Make it happen in Wilmington. So we can appeal in the present for God to be attentive to our prayers and act because of his commitments made in the past and his promises that he will fulfill. So based on all of that, Nehemiah makes a plan. He plans to act. And last little point under this final point is grace and guts. Look at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So we'll look next week at how Nehemiah acts, what he does, but the point is that he doesn't just weep and mourn and then go about his business as usual. He knows the faithfulness of God in the past, the promises of God for the future, and they serve his, pres- his faith in the present to act with gutsy obedience. So we need the righteous response of Nehemiah to provoke us, to prompt us, to humble us, like to look in. Lord, it just grieves me to see 
the ruins here or there or there. But I want to look in and say, what do you need to do in here? What do you need to do among us so that you can rebuild your church here? Reform and rebuild us. We need the ruins to ruin us, the brokenness to break us. We have neglected God and his word. We haven't loved one another as we ought. We have sought, I'm, I have sought first, second things. I need to repent and seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all those other things will be added as well. Marriages have been neglected. Yes, here, Children have been neglected here. Relationships have been broken or strained by sin. Like, there's work to do here. So Nehemiah doesn't know how it's going to go, but he knows he can't sit idly by and do nothing. And he knows that if his work is going to work, God's going to have to do the work. Psalm 127.1 is a refrain for this series, I think. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Guy I went to college with, he's, he played football for Wheaton. He was like six, seven, 300 pounds. Huge guy. But anyway, he's a pastor now. Um, and I listened to a sermon that he gave on Nehemiah, and it was really good. He said, if our work is going to work, we know that God will have to do the work. I, I paraphrased it a minute ago. So Bethel, let us pray. I'm going to pray in a second here, but you know what I mean? Let us pray. Like, that is serious application to this series. Is seeing the ruins. Lord, what needs reformed and rebuilt here and here? And what do you want me to do? And looking to him and what he has done and what he's promised to do. And then in the strength of that, moving forward with gutsy obedience and asking for grace as you go for it. Let's pray and then we're going to sing of God's faithfulness and the sufficiency of his grace, which is fitting as we close. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And your faithfulness is great. We thank you that that is true. True for us prone to wander sinners. So we call it to mind, Lord. Remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us of your promises and move us forward in faithfulness because of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.